Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Courtrate. My name is Alex and I serve as lead pastor here. If you're just joining us for the first time today or if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, uh, we are currently going through a book of the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter that was written by one of the most influential leaders in the early church, a guy named Paul. We also call him the Apostle Paul sometimes. Apostle just means messenger. Paul wrote to a church that he had founded in a city called Corinth about 2,000 years ago. Paul had originally gone to Corinth and told people about what had happened with Jesus. That's what we call the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he changes everything. And so Paul traveled the known world at that time, spreading this news, and uh, he was a missionary that way, and, and you can get an idea of one of his missionary journeys from this map. Paul really got around in the Mediterranean world. And not long after leaving Corinth, he started to hear reports that there were problems in the church there. I don't know how that happened. He started to hear reports about division in the church, and he heard about factions, that people were supporting one leader over against another leader. And another big issue that he heard about in the church in Corinth was that they had gotten the wrong idea from the culture around them, partly, but also misunderstandings about Christian faith, about they'd gotten the wrong idea about love, sex, marriage, and singleness. And we started to hear about that last week. And today we're going to get even deeper into that. And so if you're a parent, a parent or a guardian with a child here, either in the room or online, we wanted to give you a heads up about that this week, that that is going to be our focus again this Sunday. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand your word? You promise that its value never changes, that it's like gold, that it can lead us to a better life, an abundant life, even eternal life. We need your truth and your wisdom today for lots of reasons, but one of them is that we're really confused about many things, including about sex and marriage. Lord Jesus, would you shine your light into our hearts and our minds this morning? Amen. I think I took it off when I took my mask off. Yeah, I think that's what happened. And then I forgot to put it back on my ears. So this is one of those moments when you could just start waving like, hey, your mic is on your shoulder, pastor. It's okay to do that. If enough of you started waving, I would know something was wrong. It's true, it's true. So authentic, so real. Okay, let's open our Bibles. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It'll also appear on the screen. So we're going to read verses 1 to 24. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So here he's quoting from a letter that they wrote him. But, continues Paul, since sexual immorality is occurring, 
Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, which means single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. And maybe I'll just pause there. What does that mean? What's that part in brackets, I, not the Lord. Can you go back one slide? One more? So we first saw it in verse 10 there in brackets, not I, but the Lord. So is he saying the Lord's saying something in this letter, this part he's writing now, and he's saying something else? One is greater authority? No. What he's saying is that Jesus actually said that. A wife must not separate from her husband. It's in Matthew 19. So those are the words of Christ himself. And then he goes on, if you can fast forward two slides, to say that Jesus didn't actually say this part because it wasn't relevant at the time. So Paul's saying it, but all of it carries the authority of Scripture. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is now the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. And it is a dense, complicated, rich word this morning. So let me tell you a story. Um, I remember the first time I heard about purity culture. Some of you might be familiar with this phenomenon. I touched on it really briefly last Sunday. A young man in his 20s, early 20s, I think, came to me when I was a pastor in downtown Toronto and told me that he was disappointed with his marriage, including the sexual aspect of his relationship with his wife. He said, in my church growing up, they said that if you kept yourself pure and waited until marriage to have sex, God would honor that and give you a happy marriage and a great sex life. Sex life. I wore the bracelet and everything, he said. So he went on to tell me about a book entitled I Kissed Dating Goodbye that came out in 1997 and that spawned an industry of true love weights merchandise from t-shirts to, yes, bracelets. Now, I, I didn't grow up in a church that did the merchandise thing, the evangelical merchandise thing, but Justin and I have talked about it because the church that he grew up in certainly did. How many of you have heard of this True Love Waits movement? I see quite a, few, quite a few hands going up. So about three years ago, the author of this book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris apologized for what he had written. Sadly, not long after that, he and his wife split up, and he announced last year that he's no longer a Christian. Look, I want to be clear that marriage is a gift to those who are called to it. And singleness is also a gift. Paul says that here in verse 7. But let's be honest about marriage. When I do premarital counseling, I like to quote Jesus, who said, In this world you will have trouble, and that includes your marriage. It's not always going to live up to your expectations. I kiss dating goodbye actually has some really good suggestions, but it also buys into a lot of ideas that are not biblical. And there's a fair bit of fear and control mixed in there. In Scripture, purity is not primarily sexual. A biblical understanding of purity includes sex, but it's so much bigger. It's about the conversion of your whole self to Christ, and it's a continual lifelong process. There's a second half to that verse in John 16. In this world, whether you are married or single, you will have trouble, but take heart, says the Lord. I have overcome the world. And so Jesus, as the verse begins, invites us to find peace in him. Today we return to this question of what is the Christian view of sex. And we're going to explore Paul's focus here in 1 Corinthians 7, which is on marriage and singleness. First of all, we'll see that Christian marriage is a covenant of mutual submission. Secondly, we'll talk about Christian singleness as a vocation, as a calling. And third, we'll see that Christian community in the church is a unity, a oneness, a togetherness in the body of Christ and brings every individual into that wholeness. Most of all, Paul is going to remind us that we are not lonely people who need a soulmate, but rather we are sinners in need of a savior. 
We're not lonely people who need a soulmate. We're sinners who need a savior. And Paul points us to our freedom in Christ as our real, true identity. So Paul begins this chapter by saying, now for the matters you wrote about. And he's going to refer to what the Corinthian Christians included in this letter a few times as we go through the next several chapters. They had written Paul a letter in which they claimed, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In chapter 6, Paul had replied to the Corinthian idea that they had the right to do anything, including going to prostitutes. So now a different group in the church in Corinth is saying the opposite. Really, not much has changed in 2,000 years. These are still the two dominant views of sex in our world. First, the liberal view that sex is just another appetite. You should indulge it as long as you aren't hurting anyone. And then the conservative view that sex is dangerous and shameful. But here it's gone to an extreme. Some in Corinth were saying even husband and wife should not have sex, that the spiritual life was all that mattered. Apparently there were women in the church in Corinth who were new converts and they were refusing to have sex with their husbands. So the men were going to prostitutes as a result. And Paul definitely does not excuse that. As we saw last week, he says, flee from sexual immorality. It's also really important to notice here in verses 3 to 5 that he's all about mutuality between husband and wife. Both are to yield to the other. Both have authority over the other. It's almost jarring to read those words, isn't it, in our culture today? Overall, Paul is pointing out for us that sex is good, that it's part of God's design for marriage, and it's intended to help create unity in marriage. The two shall become one flesh, a verse from Genesis 2 that Paul quoted in the previous chapter. So sex isn't just another way to get pleasure. No, sex has a deeper purpose. Our bodies are for the Lord, and if we're married, our body is also for our wife or our husband. Paul's point here is that sex should take place within Christian marriage, and that the primary physical way that a married couple yields to one another enables them to enjoy intimacy and togetherness with each other. God made sex as a way for us to give ourselves to someone and this means that if you're sexually intimate with someone while also withholding a real commitment, while you're not becoming vulnerable with them in a deeper way, then you're going against God's design for sex. The Bible says that we should not embrace physical oneness until our lives have become one. We should wait. And if we experience sex without a wholehearted dedication to another person, the kind of dedication that comes through marriage, we're abusing and we're damaging something sacred, something God created to shape us, to nurture our souls, to show us how we can give ourselves to someone else. And yes, for pleasure also. But let's be clear 
that sex and marriage are never going to fulfill you. This is such a pervasive lie in our culture. We have to call it for what it is. And it's a lie that's told over and over, I think, largely because sex sells. It's marketing. All around us, we are more or less constantly invited to take a consumer approach to sex and marriage. And that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Covenant is what you'll find in Scripture. That's how God operates. So consumer versus covenant. Let me explain the difference. I have a consumer relationship with Naha's Thai restaurant on York Road. I buy their food because it's delicious. But it's also a bit expensive and getting more expensive. And you would only get takeout from Naha's because it's tiny, it has no atmosphere. In the winter, it's freezing. So if another Thai place opened up in Guelph, like, say, Taste with Andy on Cork Street, a restaurant that had good food, was less expensive, and was nicer inside, and had actual tables, good atmosphere, well, I might start going to Taste with Andy. I really wouldn't hesitate to move on from Naha's. So that's a consumer relationship, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I have a different relationship with my kids. Even when they're grumpy, or when they complain about doing chores, or play video games for eight hours a day, I can't trade my kids in. <laughs> I don't say to them, you know, Lily, this really isn't working out. It's not you. <laughs> It's me. I think I'm going to try my luck with someone else's teenage kids for a while. You wouldn't do that because your relationship with your kids is not a consumer relationship. It's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, too. It's permanent. It's sacred. It's established by God with promises made before him. Tim Keller has a superb definition of marriage. He says, it's a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. According to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. So the purpose of marriage goes way beyond our own pleasure or fulfillment. It even goes beyond the two people involved. I think that's a pretty compelling vision of what Christian marriage should be. So two quick asides to deal with some strange verses in this chapter. In verse 14, does Paul really mean that a Christian spouse can sanctify or make holy their wife or husband? Well, here sanctify has the connotation of being set apart for a special purpose. And so Paul is making the point that a believing spouse is able to bless their marriage partner when he or she is not a believer Not that they become justified or saved in Christ simply by being married to them. 
This is similar to the idea of covenant we've already talked about. And it's one of the reasons why we baptize infants in the Reformed or Presbyterian tradition. But I really don't have time to get into that this morning. So if you want to come to talk back in two weeks, we can talk about sex and infant baptism and anything else on your mind. Another kind of strange reference in this chapter is in verse 8. What does Paul mean when he says you should get married if you're burning with passion? Well, he's not advising you to marry someone you like the look of so you can have sex with them. Let's be clear about that. He's contrasting a person who finds sexual desire to be a consistent issue, even a problem in their life, with someone who is not as caught up or consumed by such desires. If you're not burning, he says, it may be a sign that you're called to singleness. If you are burning with passion, then you need to control it, first of all. But it may also be a sign that you should be looking for a spouse. And not for the hottest person in the room, either. But discerning wisely who is best for you in the long term. And this is best done in community, with wise counsel from parents, from people within your church, from friends. Okay, so we've talked about marriage. We've also talked about singleness. What about singleness as a vocation, a calling? Well, Paul covers a lot of ground from verse 8 to the end of what we read this morning. You've got the unmarried, the married, the widowed, the divorced, those married to unbelievers, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the slaves, the free. It's nine groups. All of these new believers in Corinth are trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. And into all that excitement and confusion, Paul says simply, remain as you are. You're called to live in peace wherever you find yourself. And he now turns to the unmarried and widowed and says, don't be in such a hurry to get married, even if that's what your culture is telling you to do. He says, it's good to be single, which was incredibly radical for that time. It helps to understand some of the history here. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as individual self-fulfillment or success, which we take for granted in our society. You couldn't have individual success. You could only have family success. So young people were married off in their teens. There were virtually no single adults at all. So you had to be married. And you had to have children, and children were heirs. Christians were the first to say it was okay to be single. And this was a justice issue. Christian widows had a better life. The rule had been in the Roman Empire that widows were fined if they didn't remarry within two years. But then the church came along and protected the freedom of widows and gave them a choice. This is proto-feminism in a way. Now, as we were pulling into the church parking lot, Chloe, after she heard what the topic of the sermon was today, said to me, you're going to reference that song, right? And I said, that song? She said, yes, that song. And I knew what she meant. Because, you know, it's a downside of being a pastor's kid that the pastor can tell stories about you from the front of the church. The upside is that once in a while you can take a request from your kid. <laughs> so Beyonce has a song 
There were like three amens to that. All I I had to do was say the name Beyonce. All the single ladies, all the single ladies. My family begged me not to sing it. But in this case, thanks to the activism of the church, thanks to its God-given yearning for justice for women, widows in particular, who had no rights, all the single ladies did not have to put a ring on it. Chloe? It was radical then, and it's still radical. So Paul gives us the highest possible view of sex. And then he says, it's fine to live your whole life without it. You can be content not having it. Well, people, I don't think, buy that today. We believe in the romantic myth, the idea that we do need a soulmate to be significant. And we face a different kind of pressure, not to marry our kids when they're teenagers, not to remarry as soon as our husband might die. But we're pressured to idolize the romantic idea of marriage, to put our faith in romance, whether outside of marriage or within it. And it is a form of idolatry. So many marriages are mired in unhappiness and conflict because one or both partners believe that it's the other's job to fulfill them. And lots of single people are living with the wrong assumption that they're missing out on a soulmate. True love waits for what? Maybe for the fantasy of someone saying, you complete me. Look, we all long for that. I'm not denying it. We feel our incompleteness profoundly. We're we're searching for someone who can satisfy us, or we're with someone who, at some level, we think can or should be able to do that for us. But of course, they can't. On the one hand, traditional society, whether in the ancient world or today, says that unless you have a spouse and a family, you cannot be fulfilled. Some of you are familiar with the pressure of parents who have that operating assumption. On the other hand, modern Western society says that unless you have a romantic partner and are having sex, you cannot be fulfilled. But Paul says neither of these things is true. Paul says we are not lonely people who need a soulmate. We are sinners in need of a savior. And so Paul gives us the gospel. He points here to our freedom in Christ as our real identity. Paul says that we're called to peace and we should remain in the place where God has put us. Does that mean we should stay in an abusive relationship? No, definitely not. Does it mean that generally we should stay where we are and not move on to something new? No, he's not saying that either. Take divorce. In Corinth, divorce was easy. It happened all the time. A husband could divorce his wife just by walking out. But Paul says for Christians, divorce is forbidden. Then he makes an exception. Unfaithfulness, such as when an unbelieving husband or wife leaves. Paul is pointing us here to a deeper peace, a countercultural peace. The world says, fulfill yourself, do whatever it takes. If you wake up one day and no longer love your wife, then leave. If you don't get pleasure from a relationship, end it. If something is difficult or painful, why stick around for that? But Paul says we've been called to peace. 
that we should remain faithful in the situation where God has put us. Who are we to say it's over? God may use us to reach someone in our life who needs the love of Christ, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how difficult they may be. Abide with me, says Jesus. Abide with the people I've given you. Don't run off looking for new ones or imagine there are better ones. Let your roots grow deeper where you are, even if the soil is hard and the fruit is not yet evident. He says, trust me. Why does Paul talk about circumcision? Why does he talk about slavery? Because those were the two biggest divisions in Corinth and throughout the world at that time. He's focused here and drawing us into a vision of the body of Christ as where all of this gets worked out, God's sanctifying and redeeming purposes. And in Galatians, he describes it like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Male and female, is there a more fundamental division? Well, only thanks to God coming among us in Christ and paying the price for our sins. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of Gentiles and Jews in that case, thus making peace out of every division we face. And in one body, in Jesus, and in the church to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So ultimately, our hope is in Christ. He has taken away everything that can divide us. Without God, it's true that we die alone. But in Jesus, we find true completion. And as we receive the fullness of Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity in him. Ethnic and cultural differences, socioeconomic barriers, Power differentials no longer define who we are. They don't need to anymore. Even that basic division of male and female melts away in the unity that Jesus Christ provides. And we have a taste of that now, but it will be fulfilled when God's kingdom comes completely. Right now, the body of Christ is the new social and spiritual reality for us. Marriage and singleness are not central like they used to be. And that's going to raise a lot of questions we don't have time to get into this morning about how we should live together, the isolation we often feel, the way the church disappoints us, its brokenness. How can we conform less to the pattern of the world and how we live out our married and single lives together in Christ's community in the church? In the end, we are called to Christ first. Jesus says to us, unless you make me your one true love, you're either going to be so desperate for love that what you have will never satisfy you, or you'll be so scared of it and cynical about it that you'll close yourself off from love entirely. Jesus says, unless you make me your one true love, everything else will eventually disappoint you if it hasn't already. Jesus says, unless you make me your one true love, your view of sex and marriage and singleness will become hopelessly distorted. But with Christ at the center of our lives, the other pieces 
start to fall into place. There is grace for the journey. Jesus is the one, the only one, who loves us as we truly need to be loved. He's the one who knows us perfectly and yet accepts us, is always ready to forgive us. And he then frees us up to truly love God and sends us out to love the others in whose path he has put us. Thanks be to God. We see his love in Christ, and it defines us. Amen.